Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. I wonder if you could give a slightly warmer welcome to uh, my glamorous assistants who are going to come and read the passage for us in Luke 16. Do you guys want to come up? These guys are, along with all of the kids that are in the kids' work, these guys are the future of our church. And so it's great to have them. And uh, yeah, fire away, Reeves. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. Some, I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? 30 tons a week, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 24. The master commended his, the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of... For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Thank you, guys. Great. Well, we're in a summer series, and we're looking at six parables in the book of Luke. And the parable of the shrewd manager is only recorded in the book of Luke But 16 of the 38 parables that we read about through the Gospels actually touch on money. Other than heaven, Jesus spoke most about money. And so it's hardly surprising that when we read in the Bible Jesus' words, we have to encounter the topic of money. Money plays a massive role in our lives. I, I, I probably don't need to tell that to you. You need it to pay your bills. You need it to buy food, to buy clothes. You need it to go on holiday, to go to the cinema. You can use your money to get to the edge of space. 
Oscar Wilde in the late 1800s said, money isn't the most important thing in the world, but it's reasonably close to oxygen on the gotta have it scale. It matters massively to who we are. There's a good side to money. It's a wonderful asset. We can use it, we can use our finance to bless others. Jesus was supported financially by other people. In Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, he says not to take a bag or a tunic. He says to to rely solely on the provision from others. There's also a bad side to money, and it can bring out the darkest parts of us. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all evil, and money can become our idol. Who hasn't dreamt of making it big or having loads of money? We're bombarded by adverts all the time. You just have to watch the television, and every advert seems to be enticing you to live the dream. You can buy that new car that you've always wanted. There's a new iPhone or a new watch that you can buy. It's within your grasp. By the end of the National Lottery adverts, I've already worked out how I'm going to spend my 30 million jackpot. Done and dusted. It's easy, isn't it? We're fixated on winning it. We're fixated on earning more of it. And we're terrified of not having enough of it. And Jesus knows the positive and the negative aspects of finance in our lives. And so he speaks about it so much because he wants to equip us to deal with the positives and negatives of that finance. So Luke 16, the passage we read together, is Jesus telling a parable. And I don't know about you, but I was really struggling with it when I first read it. And commentators throughout the centuries have argued and wrangled and not decided exactly what the parable means. So I'm going to have a stab at it today. So we begin the parable by understanding who Jesus is addressing. And we can see in verse 1 that it's the disciples. But as with many of Jesus' teachings... There are other people hanging around. There are are outsiders listening in. In verse 14, we see that the Pharisees have been listening because they're sneering at what Jesus has had to say. But we are the intended audience, the followers of Jesus. And the details of the parable are fairly basic. There was a rich man. We don't know where his wealth had come from. But he'd employed someone to look after his business but it appears there's a whistleblower in the ranks because someone has made the rich man aware that the manager has been wasting his possessions. Now, at this point, we don't know that there's any wrongdoing as such. He might just be someone who's in the wrong job. He's just not very good at it. So the rich man calls the manager into the office and says, basically, here's your P45. You're you're out Um, You cannot be my manager any longer, verse 2 says. But it seems like the dismissal is an instant. And that was cultural, that you may lose your job, but it may not be to the end of the day. So he had a bit of time to think about his next move. And we hear some of the narrative in his head from verse 3. You know, he's a white-collar worker now. He's not cut out for digging, 
Maybe he's just not willing to do it, but he's definitely too proud to beg. So he hatches a master plan. He brings in a number of the people that owe his master money, and he starts wiping out their debt. Now, commentators can't agree on the reason for this. There are three uh, differing opinions. One is that the the, uh, manager is actually reducing the debt by taking off his own commission. The second is that he's reducing the debt in line with market value. So one of them owes wheat, and the price of wheat has gone down. So he's just adjusting it. Or the third option is that he's reducing the size of the overall debt, essentially doing the rich man out of what he's owed. But whichever it is, we're told in verse 8 that he's now a dishonest manager. And from the rich man's perspective, the manager has done him out of money. He's done him out of finance. And as I read it, even though I've read it multiple times, I'm rooting for justice. I cannot wait for the rich man to get one over on the manager because he diddled him out of finance. But I'm left stunned. It's it's unbelievable because in the second half of verse eight, we read this. The master commended the dishonest manager because he has acted shrewdly. I mean, what? It's ridiculous. But basically, he used the boss's money in the present, in the here and now, to set himself up for the future after his job is finished. And I want to be clear at this point, Jesus, while telling this parable, is not endorsing this dishonesty. Jesus does not turn a blind eye to illicit or illegal practices even if the outcome is ultimately righteous. And in the parable, the rich man isn't commending the manager for taking his money. He's not saying, oh, well done, you took loads of money off me. You're very clever. What he's saying is that the manager has been shrewd. He's thought about it. Jesus is highlighting the shrewdness of the manager And shrewdness is actually something that we should desire. The word shrewd in the dictionary means astute. And if we refer back to Jesus sending the apostles out in Matthew 10, uh, we can read in verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus is telling us to be shrewd. Jesus isn't telling us to be dishonest. We're to be innocent as doves. And at the end of verse 8 in our passage in Luke 16, Jesus finishes the story and he starts applying the teachings. He tells us, For the people of this world are more shrewd, more astute in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And it's easy to back this point up. All you need to do is look at the Forbes world richest people. It's estimated there are about 3,000 billionaires in this world. And the top 10 of the list are absolutely littered with household names. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. The list goes on. You all know who these people are. 
These individual, individuals are shrewd businessmen. They know how to make a business. They know how to get a return. These five men that I mentioned have a net worth of $650 billion, and yet they came into the world with zero. They know how to get money. They've done a good job at it. So Jesus goes on in verse 9 and gives us the first instruction of this parable. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You see, Jesus knows that we're not in the same league as these guys. I'm no Jeff Bezos. I'm no Warren Buffett. But we can have longer lasting gains than they have from what they're investing in. You see, the shrewd business men and women of this world have 80 years max to enjoy their wealth. In fact, they've got such a short amount of time that they've had to agree to like, get rid of it just because they can't, they can't use enough of it themselves. And they're going to enjoy their wealth before it's gone. And it's when it's gone, not if. We didn't bring anything into this world and we will not be taking anything out of this world. Jesus wants us to be shrewd investors in something eternal, to put our money where nothing can touch it. And there's always one key point within a parable. Otherwise, it would be pointless. Jesus wouldn't tell them. And in this particular parable, it's our relationship with money. But before we look at a couple of points, I want to take us to Matthew 22 and verses 36 to 40. And I want to remind us of something fundamental that we need to remember as Christians before we look at this parable in depth. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Our practical Christianity hinges on love. It hinges on our attitude, our attitude towards God, towards others, and towards ourselves. And if we combine those attitudes with our relationship with money, then there are three points in this parable that I hope you'll find helpful today. And the first is this, money and our attitude towards others. I've already said this today, but we cannot take our money with us. And so you know that the money we have is limited to this time that we have on earth. So how can we best use our finance? Well, Matthew 6, 19 and 20 says, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures In heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 9 I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. 
People's lives are the only thing that lasts eternally. Nothing in this world lasts eternally but people's lives. So Jesus is encouraging us in this parable to take our finance and to make a difference with other people. Imagine the the moment that you leave this world and you get to heaven and you're stood around, you're worshipping and someone comes and taps you on the shoulder. Yes. And they say, it's you. You regularly gave to Citygate Church to their regular giving. Do you know that financed an Alpha course? And I went on that Alpha course. And that's why I'm here. Or perhaps it will be another initiative or another event that you've supported financially, that enables people to meet Jesus because that's what's important. Our online broadcasting costs money. We have to buy kit. But it enables people to meet Jesus who can't make it into the Citygate Centre. Our Southbourne site is a fantastic venue, but it needs investment so that it can meet the needs of the local community. Here at Bournemouth, we want to put a cafe in the main entrance which can serve the community and the hundreds of students who live in the buildings around us. But it needs funding. The list goes on. One good example of this giving into eternity is John Wesley. Those of you who know, John Wesley is is like a role model of Christians. He lived in the 1700s and he started the Methodist church movement. And the story goes that one winter's day, he went out to buy some paintings for his house because the walls were a bit bare. And he came back, and as he was pottering around, one of the chambermaids knocked on the door. And so he opened the door to let her in, and he noticed that she was wearing the thinnest garment that had no hope of protecting her from the cold. So he put his hand in his pocket to give her some money. And he found he had none. He'd spent it all on paintings. And so he, said to, he says that at that moment, he thought to himself, will the Lord congratulate me? And will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? He felt terrible because the money that he could have spent giving the lady money for a coat, he spent it on paintings. And so at that moment, he decided that he would do something different. So that year, his income was 30 pounds and his living expenses were 28 pounds. So he gave two pounds to the poor. In the next year, he earned 60 pounds and he maintained his living expenses at 28 pounds. So he gave 32 pounds to the poor. The following year, he earned 90 pounds. His living expenses were 28 pounds. He gave 62 pounds to the poor. I can see some of you are checking my maths. It's okay, I I did the sums. (laughs) But you get the picture. Many years later, his income had reached 1,400 pounds a year. His living expenses that year were 30 pounds. So he gave £1,370 of his money to the poor. 
You see, he was adamant that as his income increased, it wasn't his standard of living that should increase. It was his standard of giving that needed to increase. And I'll say it again. It wasn't his standard of living that needed to increase, but the standard of giving that needed to increase. You see, John Wesley understood Luke 16, chapter, uh, verse 9. And in heaven, he is going to be inundated with people tapping him on the shoulder, saying, you gave this money to that. And, and I was there. Um, in fact, he's been dead for probably 300 years, and he's probably still having people tap him on the shoulder and say, the money that you invested into eternity is the reason that I'm here. You see, it didn't increase his worldly wealth, but it is reaping massive rewards for the kingdom of God. Money and our attitude towards others. No, towards ourselves. Verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Money isn't actually that big a thing if you think about it. I have a 20 pound note. I don't see many of these. Um, In and of itself, it's not actually it's not actually worth much. It's It's a bit of paper. Well, they're not paper anymore, are they? It's a bit of plastic with the queen's head on it. But the value of this note is a test of our faithfulness and how trustworthy we are. How we handle it reveals what kind of person we are. And it's spiritual. If I was to offer this note out today to someone here, I guarantee all of you by now have worked out where it's going to be spent. You've already allocated it. It might go on a new school uniform for the start of term. It might go for a post-lockdown haircut. Some of you need it, by the way. It might go on a round of golf with some friends. But this type of offer really tests our hearts. And the value of the note will differ from person to person. Yes, it's 20 pounds. But the rich person who is desperate to increase their wealth will be hounding me for this 20 pound note. There could also be a poor person here today who cannot wait to have this 20 pound note and bless somebody else because they've never had the money. You see, it's not about the value of the money. It's about what we place on this note. You see... Have you caught yourself saying this? If I had more, I'd give more. If I had a little bit more, I'd I'd give more. Of course I would. Would you really? Would you actually? 
I'll be honest, it's very unlikely. It doesn't really matter how much you have. If you won the lottery tomorrow, it wouldn't change your heart. It would definitely change your bank balance, but it would not change your heart. You see, the widow who had nothing gave absolutely everything. And the rich ruler, next week's parable, who had everything, wouldn't give a thing. He walked away. The money that we have is not even ours. We don't even own it. It's all God's. We're given the opportunity to steward it for him. And God has entrusted it to us. And yet, sometimes we're reluctant to give it back to him. Like the dishonest manager in the parable, he was just looking after someone else's money. And we are the stewards of God's money. And that reality reality changes everything. Our question shouldn't be, how much of my money should I give to God? And I am guilty of, of saying that. How much of my money should I give back to God? Our question should really be, well, how much of God's money should I keep for myself? So we had money and our attitude to others, money and our attitude to ourselves, and briefly, money and our attitude towards God. And how you relate to money, to this 20 pound note in my pocket, how you relate to that will determine whether you are serving God or you are serving money. You cannot serve both. Verse 13 tells us that. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is a rival to God. It's asking for our allegiance all the time. Only this week, there was a news article of a South African pastor who has swindled his church or he's charged of swindling his church out of a million pounds. There's been a news story of a pastor of a megachurch in Texas who has been imprisoned for fraud for three and a half million dollars. You see, they have fallen out of love with God and they have fallen in love with money. They cannot serve both masters. You'll love the one and you'll hate the other. In 2013, Forbes wrote an article entitled this, Fraud Thriving in Churches, But You Wouldn't Know It. I mean, do I really need to go on? There's a battle out there. You know, Jesus is the son of the creator God, came to earth to die for our sins. He's the son of the creator God who invented the idea of money. And so if Jesus tells us that we're going to have a problem with it, then we need to listen. We cannot serve two masters. We make a choice, God or money. And you might be sat here today and you might be shaking your head and saying, nope, money's not my idol. 
And if that is the case, then, then that's a great place to be. And I would love to hear some wisdom because there are too many occasions in my life where God plays second fiddle to my idol of money. Whenever there's a gift week on the horizon, I'm always thinking, are you kidding me? How on earth am I going to afford to give anything? Meanwhile, I'm sat counting 20 pound notes that I've just been stashing away for a snowboard holiday. Matthew 6, 20, Matthew 6 that we read earlier, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I've really grappled with this as I've been studying it. It wasn't a parable that I was familiar with. Where has this message and this passage prodded you today? If you aren't a Christian, are you intrigued? Are you inquisitive? Do you have more questions now than you had half an hour ago? And if that's the case, then please speak to someone. It's an opportunity today. Please don't let it pass you by. But if you're a Christian here today, then, it's, then you know that heaven is our final destination. Our time here on earth is fleeting. And what we do with our time on earth has eternal implications. There are so many lost souls in this town that need to hear the good news of Jesus. So, so what can we do? Well, I've mentioned a couple. Our Southbourne site and a cafe in the main foyer. But there's one more. And the one I want to mention is the student worker role that's just been filled by Katie Thorne. And God's doing amazing things in the lives of the students that live around us here at Citygate. And the elders felt it was right to employ someone part-time. But the monthly funding is not fully in place. Wouldn't it be great if Citygate could start making staff decisions because the funding's already there? You know, if every current giver to Citygate increased their giving by 5%, we'd have an annual increase of £23,000. Just 5%. 10% would be nearly £50,000. And that's not to mention the people who haven't even started giving yet. Perhaps the day, today is the day to start. Because God has amazing plans for this church in our town. But finance is the key. And I pray that Luke 16 has prompted you to consider what impact can you have on eternity by the finances that you've been blessed with?